When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wednesday, October 21, 1987. It was a little after 9 p.m., when Charles Bartholomew returned to the home he shared with his wife, Joanne, in the Akron suburb of Stowe. He'd spent the day doing renovations in a new Dairy Queen store they planned to open in another week. 47-year-old Joanne had a more leisurely day planned. She went on a shopping trip with her mom to a Southern Ohio outlet mall, made dinner for her husband and left him instructions to warm it up then left again to attend the 7 p.m. service at the First Church of God in Talmadge. When Charles found the house dark, he wasn't too surprised. The church service would have ended at 8, but it wasn't unusual for he and Joanne, both trustees of the church, to linger afterward for a business meeting. So Charles settled onto the living room sofa and drifted off to sleep watching the World Series between the Minnesota Twins and the St. Louis Cardinals. At midnight, the Bartholomew's youngest son, Tom, returned home from a date. He woke his father. Where's mom, he asked. Her car isn't in the garage. Well, that can't be, Charles thought to himself as he shook off his grogginess and headed to the garage to see for himself. But Joanne's powder blue Cadillac Coupe de Ville wasn't there. For the next few hours, Charles drove the route between the church and their home. He steered past the houses of friends, hoping to spot her car in a driveway. He slowed down to glance into culverts and ditches. When the sun began to lighten the sky, he headed for the Stowe Police Department. He would never see Joanne alive again. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and BeaconJournal.com, this is Unresolved, a look at the unsolved murders and disappearances from the greater Akron area. I'm Paula Schleiss, co-host of Ohio Mysteries, and helping with this ongoing series, which is covered in this podcast, as well as stories in print and online, are Akron Beacon Journal reporter Stephanie Warsmith and my Ohio Mysteries co-host, Steve Yoder. Now, Unresolved, Episode 9, Joanne Bartholomew. 
I came home after my first year at Ohio University and I went over to my cousins and I called her up and I said, Marilyn, I said, uh, do you know anybody you could fix me up with to go out with this during the summer? And uh, no, she said, I, I don't know of anybody. All my friends are dating. That's Charles Bartholomew talking about the unconventional way he found his future bride back in 1958. He'd graduated from Akron's Bookdale High School the year before. His cousin Marilyn was a recent graduate of Cuyahoga Falls High. So I said, well, do you mind? Do you have a, you have a class picture, don't you? And she said, yes. And I said, well, do you mind if I come over and look at it? She said, no, come on over. So we went over and we were actually sitting on the floor looking at the picture and it was a long kind of narrow picture. She said, but I'd, all of my friends are dating somebody. And I said, well, I said, I'll tell you what. I took my finger and I went down on the picture. I didn't look. I just took my finger and went down on the picture. And I took my finger up and I said, get me a date with her, would you? And she said, oh, she's dating somebody. And I said, well, you can ask her if she'd go out. So she called me back, oh, it was about a week later, and said that she was going to set up a double date between me and Joanne and she and her boyfriend. So that's how I met her and we went out for our first time. And that's how Charles found the girl of his dreams. She was uh, very outgoing and just fun to be with. And we had a lot of fun together and had kind of the same things that we would like to do in life. Her parents were very much involved in their church. And she wanted also, going to school made it difficult, but she wanted also to have that as her background. The pair dated for more than three years, then got married as they pursued the careers they'd gone to school for. Joanne became a teacher in Cuyahoga Falls, following in the education footsteps of her father, a retired Talmadge school superintendent. Charles became a project engineer for a marine contractor, Great Lakes Dredge and Dock. His work required him to travel something that became a burden as their two sons, Scott and Tom, were growing up. He and Joanne talked of starting a family business, something that wouldn't require him to travel, maybe something their boys could get involved in. How about a miniature golf course with a custard stand? Well, they got the custard part anyway. In 1982, they decided to purchase a closed Dairy Queen store in Mogador and then bought a second one in Cuyahoga Falls. It was hard work, but it gave them more time to be together and with their sons. She was a great mom. We were family-oriented. We, we had something we did we called a family hug, and we'd stand around each other. We did that from the time before they could walk almost. We'd pick them up and we'd have family hugs. By 1987, the boys were grown. Their eldest son, Scott, got married that August and was living in Philadelphia. Tom was still living at home and working for his parents. 
Charles and Joanne no longer had the original Magador store, but were opening another one in Medina. While Charles finished the renovation of the new store, Joanne was interviewing potential employees. They were a week away from opening. That's why Charles begged off that Wednesday in October when Joanne asked if he planned to attend the evening church service, as they usually did. He needed to finish up some spackling at the new store so it would dry in time for him to paint the next day. Joanne didn't mind. She was going to spend the day with her mother. A few days earlier, she had attended a home party where a fashion expert gave guests suggestions as to what colors complemented their skin tone. Joanne, who had made her own wedding gown, was excited about buying some fabric and perhaps a new outfit with her recommended colors. And so she and her mother headed south to an outlet mall. She made it back home that afternoon, changed into her new outfit, and wore it to church that evening. Charles got home before Joanne did and warmed the food she'd left for him. He saw the tags from her new clothes on the bed and wondered what colors they were in. He turned on the TV, waiting for her to return, and dozed off. The next thing he knew, it was midnight, and son Tom was coming home from his date. I remember the door opening from the garage, and it woke me up coming in from the garage and he said, Dad, where's Mom? Where's Mom? And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, she's home, isn't she? I said, look at the time. And there was a clock set there on the table. He said, no, her car isn't in the garage. I said, oh. I actually got up and walked to the door and looked out and the car wasn't there. So... I just, I was kind of beside myself, and I said to him, I said, something's wrong. I said, your mom should be home by now. Charles called the church to see if some meeting could have possibly gone on that late. No one answered. He didn't want to call and scare Joanne's parents. Not yet. They were elderly, and she was their only child. Maybe there was a good explanation for her absence. So he told Tom to stay home in case Joanne called and left in search of her. And I went up and drove around Chapel Hill. I I didn't know why I was going. I was just going to see if I could see her in her car for some reason. And, of course, I never found her. I got home, it was about 6 o'clock, and uh, I knew that the pastor got up uh, with the kids to get ready for school around 6 in the morning. So I went in and I called his house. He answered, and I told him what had happened. Um, And I said, "I, I don't know what's going on, but I said, she didn't come home, and I said, 
that's never, that never happens. Uh, I said, we always tell each other. In fact, if we're going to be late, we always call and tell each other we're going to be late. That's what we do all the time. And um, so he couldn't explain to me what may have happened. Charles' next stop was the Stowe Police Department. An officer came, detective officer came out, and I explained to him the situation. He didn't get a little concerned at first. Uh, He said, you have to understand, this is not uncommon. A husband and wife have an argue, and one of them leaves. I said, no, sir, this is not the case. I said, there's something wrong. I said, she didn't come home. So he said, the only thing we can do initially is put a warrant out for a stolen car. And he said, for the first 24 to 48 hours. And so that's what they did. They put a report out for a stolen car. And this this is Thursday morning. Then came the heart-wrenching task of telling Joanne's parents that their daughter was missing. He had the church pastor meet him at their home so they'd have his support as well. Then, with Stowe police in a holding pattern, it was up to the Bartholomew family to continue the search. Son Scott was informed of his mother's disappearance, and he and his wife started the drive from Philadelphia. Meanwhile, Charles and his son Tom decided to check every parking lot between the church and their home. Charles reasoned if someone had taken Joanne, they might have left the car behind. At Chapel Hill Mall, a place Charles had passed half a dozen times in his search the previous night, they started in the back, sweeping all the parking off Buchholzer Boulevard, Then they made a turn at the old Brown Derby restaurant to look over the front of the mall off Britain Road. And there it was, near the street, far from the mall entrance, Joanne's powder blue Cadillac. Before Charles and Tom even exited the car, Charles told his son, your mom didn't park that car there. The front left tire had been jammed against the curb, the rubber indented. Joanne would never have been that reckless. The two men knew better than to touch the car, but Charles peered inside, and that's when he saw something that made his heart sink. When I got to the driver's side and I looked in the car, I just got sick. I saw her two shoes pinched in the passenger side door and the soles were towards the dash like that her feet was stuck in the door when the door slammed shut and her feet then were pulled out and the door and the shoes stayed stuck in the door Charles found a police officer inside the mall. Since Chapel Hill was in Akron, 
it was their jurisdiction. Akron detectives arrived on the scene and used the second set of keys Charles had brought with him to look in the trunk. It was empty. A car mat was missing. The Cadillac was towed to have it processed for prints and evidence. That night, Charles went out again, this time armed with a searchlight to help pierce the growing dark. He stayed in the Chapel Hill area, illuminating the woods, brush, and green spaces that surrounded the retail area. He found nothing. Friday morning, Akron police called Charles to come and collect Joanne's car. They were finished with it. So he drove to downtown Akron, and there, as he was crossing a street, he ran into his cousin, Lynn Slaby, who at the time was Summit County's prosecutor. When Slaby learned what had happened, he rallied the media. Joanne's disappearance was now in the news. But another full day of searching proved futile. The third day, Saturday, began with a chilling discovery. Charles was pulling Joanne's car out of the garage when the sunlight struck the maroon-colored interior in such a way a stain was visible that he hadn't seen before. He called Akron detectives and asked what they had found on the seat. Their report showed nothing. So forensic technicians were dispatched to the Bartholomew home and took a sample of the stain. It would prove to be Joanne's blood. Scott and his wife were in town now, and the Bartholomews were joined in their search by her family. As a matter of fact, it was Charles' daughter-in-law's sister who discovered Joanne that afternoon. Without cell phones to communicate, It would be a while before Charles learned this, but later he realized he knew the moment it happened. He and Scott had been driving around Chapel Hill again when they heard sirens in the distance. It was about two in the afternoon. They didn't give the sound another thought, but it was the police headed to a patch of woods off Buchholzer across the street from the back of the mall. Not knowing this, Charles and Scott continued their search a bit longer and then went home to take a break. Scott and I then went home. And we got, when we got to the house, there was a city car parked in the, front of, in the street in front of our house. And I said to Scott then, I said, something's not good. And it turned out it was Lynn Slaby was there. And he was there to let us know that they had found her body and uh, they had taken it to the morgue.
Joanne was found nude, except for her bra. She is um, in a wooded area, not far into the woods. Um, I think you can actually see her from the parking lot. She's laying on her back. She has uh, multiple stab wounds to the chest and neck area. Um, appears that she possibly could have been sexually assaulted. That's Detective James Basilich of the Akron Police Department, who pulled Bartholomew's file out of the cold case closet a few years ago to see if modern technology could solve it. Her feet are clean, so it's not like she walked back through the, the woods. It doesn't look like she was dragged through the woods. She's got no marks like that, no drag marks. Um, so she was probably carried back there. So then not all the clothing was recovered. Um, there was a, uh, a like a vest-type uh, shirt or jacket. Um, I want to say there were some other items, too. It looks like the vest had uh, holes punctured through it, probably that could have lined up with the puncture holes um, in her body, like she had it on at the time. Charles went to see the spot where Joanne was found and came to the stunning realization that he had been standing just yards from her body. You see, during one of his many trips around Chapel Hill on Thursday, Charles had stopped in at Best Products, across the street from the back of the mall where Dick's Sporting Goods is now. He had become increasingly convinced that the only way for Joanne to have been abducted was if she had stopped to get out of the car and Best Products was a favorite store of hers. It was an unusual store, and that products were on display, and if you wanted something, you had to write your name and the product number on a slip of paper and take it to the counter. There, a clerk would have it delivered by conveyor belt. Charles asked the staff if he could see their customer slips from the night before to see if Joanne had been there, but the slips had been thrown out Wednesday night, So Charles had gone to the back of the store and climbed up on the dumpster. The morning's trash had already been taken away. Now Charles realized if he had turned around when he was on that dumpster and knew where to look, he would have seen his wife. Charles also learned his instincts were right. Joanne had stopped to do some shopping on her way home from church Wednesday night. She'd gone into O'Neill's, one of the Chapel Hill's anchor tenants. A cousin who worked there turned out to be the last person to see Joanne alive, with the exception of her killer. We had decided that we were going to buy VCRs for her mom and dad and my parents and for us for Christmas. She had mentioned to me that O'Neill's was having a sale on VCRs the weekend. My cousin worked in the TV department in O'Neill's up on the second floor, and my wife knew that. And so that night on the way home, went up and looked at VCRs and then left and then she par- had to park somewhere in the O'Neill's parking lot. We figure when she was getting into the car that somebody attacked her. Since it was logical for her to have parked on the back side of the mall to enter O'Neill's, there are many theories as to how the car got to the front of the mall. One likelihood 
is that after Joanne was attacked, the killer took her to where her body was found, then drove the car back to the other side of the mall before abandoning it. Even today, police are not sure whether Joanne was killed at the site where she was found. In the days that followed, leads led to police finding her purse, various credit cards, and personal papers, and the missing car mat. They were all in the area of Patterson Park in Akron's North Hill, a few miles from the mall. And there was no shortage of people to track down and talk to. Detective Basilich leafed through a binder full of forms, each one representing a lead or a phone call that had to be checked out. All these are tips that came in. Each one's a different one. Um, at some point in here, they talk about how they had over 100 suspects that people would call in and say, uh, you know, this person, this person. And like I said, a lot of that isn't based on fact, it's based on feeling. Charles said the one lead that always stood out to him was Detective Bruce Van Horn, an original investigator on the case, told him that a week or so before Joanne was killed, another woman had been attacked in the Chapel Hill parking lot. She worked at another mall anchor, Penny's, and she had asked a security guard to walk her to the car. He didn't take her all the way. Once they were inside of the car, he held back and watched as she finished walking to it. Then he turned and went back inside. But the woman's assailant was already in the car. He beat her badly. Van Horn told Charles the woman was so afraid she wouldn't even talk to police about the incident. Charles asked if he could try and talk to her, but was told the woman wanted to forget what happened and declined. While that story didn't make the news, other stories did, and collectively they threw Summit County into a very dark mood during the holiday season of 1987. Joanne's was the second of four murders that happened in a five-month span, and they stood out because they were all average, middle-class moms, wives, daughters, killed doing routine things. These weren't women in high-risk neighborhoods or involved in dangerous activities like drugs or prostitutions. They were playing bingo, jogging, shopping, going to a party. The series of murders set the community on edge. Groups started holding self-defense classes for women. Husbands and fathers were accompanying their wives and daughters on everyday errands. Pepper spray sales were sky high. Because different police jurisdictions were involved, a task force was formed to determine whether the cases were related. The conclusion was they were not. No serial killer at work here, just tragedy upon tragedy. Three of those cases remain unsolved. In addition to Joanne's, police are still seeking the killer of Janice Christensen, a Cuyahoga Falls woman found on a jogging trail in Hudson, and Marcia K. Potter of Akron, found in her car a few blocks from home. It took 33 years to solve the fourth case. In 2020, the revolutionary process of identifying a suspect by building a family tree from an unknown DNA profile 
linked a man to fingernail clippings taken from Barbara Blatnick. She was a Garfield Heights teen whose body was found near Blossom Music Center in Cuyahoga Falls. James Zastonic was awaiting trial in Barbara Blatnick's death when he died of cancer last year. It took 33 years for that one, and Joanne Bartholomew's case won't even be that easy. The only DNA found on her belonged to her or her husband. The cases, unfortunately, that are not DNA cases, those are hard. There's, there's evidence-wise, it's not going to get you there. It's going to have to be somebody talking and, and saying what happened. And so the Bartholomew family still waits for justice. I want to say this strongly. Our, our police department, has, has, they, they made a couple of mistakes but they, in a couple of things, but they did a phenomenal job. They've always worked hard. After Joanne's funeral, we had I had everybody back to our house, and uh, we were all out in the. I had the food in the house, and then we were outside eating at tables and so on and so forth. And just out of the blue, a young doe came out of the woods and ran up and alongside the house and went across the street while we were all out there. Then it was just... Did it seem like a sign? We thought so. Well, Still think so. Yep. <laughs> Charles is 82 years old now and still active at his Medina Dairy Queen store. He's got three grandkids. His son Tom and grandson Blake help with the business. His son Scott left Philly and returned to Ohio after his retirement, so most of his family is just a short drive from him now. Three years after Joanne died, Charles met Rose Vitale. They dated for a few years and married in 1995. Life moved on, but Joanne has never been forgotten. Three years ago, Charles went to the Akron Police Department with newspaper clippings in hand, cases where he wondered if the suspect might have been involved in his wife's murder all those years ago. And he and his wife, Rose, watched true crime shows together, looking for hope and inspiration and all the new technology that is solving cases once thought unsolvable. First of all, you marry to be married for a lifetime. And that was Joanne and I. And of course, that was all interrupted. And uh, to meet uh, Rose, she's phenomenal. And she, she has been so supportive of everything to try and solve this case. And uh, I'm just so lucky. If you have any information that could help solve this case, please call Akron Police Detective Jim Pasilich at 330-375-2490.
And that's it for this month's edition of Unresolved, a collaborative podcast between Ohio Mysteries and the Akron Beacon Journal. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.